Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to you um, that we have songs like the hymns we've sung and the, the praise songs we've sung to sing about your name, Lord, that echoes back to us the truths that we find in your word. And Lord, we are so thankful to you that we have your word. Um, so many copies. Um, I'm sure we all have several copies in our homes when there's other places around the world where believers are desperate just for a page. Lord, we are thankful to you that we have all of your revelation in our hands and in these books, Lord, these Bibles. We thank you so much for your word that instructs us, that reveals to us ways in which uh, we still need to grow. Lord, it's your word that has made us wise unto salvation, that showed us the reality of our sin and our need for a Savior, and it showed us how we could receive his free gift by turning from sin and putting our trust in him alone, Lord. Your word taught us to abandon our own efforts to save ourselves and to uh, throw ourselves upon your mercy, to run to Christ who alone has done everything required to rescue us. Lord, we thank you for this book and we thank you for how the Spirit uses it to prune us, to make us more like your Son. And we pray that, um, that, that your word would have that impact upon us this morning as we study it together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're back in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 6 this morning. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to be working our way through the first eight verses, and I'll read those for us. Paul writes, verse 1, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. When I mention the word conflict, probably that word causes you to react in one of two ways. If you're like me, your stomach turns into knots because conflict is something that you would like to be as far away from as possible. Or maybe you react in a second way. Maybe you hear the word conflict and you become like a Viking berserker and your heart starts beating at the thrill of the fight. When your relationship with someone goes through a conflict, depending on what kind of mix of temperament you are, you're probably prone to react in one of two sinful ways. First, you might be prone to selfishly withdraw from that person. Or, conversely, you might be prone to selfishly blowing up that relationship. When we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we find Paul having to deal 
with disastrous conflict that is occurring in the church. And both of those sinful responses seem to be in the mix. Someone is dragging his brother to court. He is attacking. He is blowing up this relationship selfishly. On the other hand, the church at large seems to be passively allowing it to happen, selfishly withdrawing as a kind of passive participation in the sin. How did the Corinthians get to this point? Well, their embrace of worldly wisdom is what has led them to this point, to where they're having lawsuits with one another. Paul admonished them about their embrace of worldly wisdom in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. And as we went through the scriptures, we came to chapter 5, where Paul had exhorted this congregation to remove a sexually immoral man from their midst. In chapter 5, verse 12, he said, Do you not judge those who are within the church? He talked about judging this man. And that conversation about judging has led him to talk about this topic, another way of judging within the church. But here he's not talking about dealing with a sexually immoral person. Here he is talking to the church about how they ought to work through disputes that arise within the congregation how they should judge regarding personal disputes that people have with one another. That is what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, the kind of dispute that's going on in this chapter is of a civil nature. It's not of a criminal nature. This passage that we're going to look at this morning is not prohibiting us from going to secular authorities when there's criminal activity going on, like abuse or murder. We don't handle those things in-house. We report those things to the governing authorities. Romans 13 is clear that God has established governing authorities to handle criminal cases. This passage also is not necessarily prohibiting us from ever properly pursuing legal recourse against an unbeliever someone outside the church. After all, if you remember, back in chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, we found that unbelievers are not subject to the judgments of the church. So the church often may not be in a position to fully bring a resolution to a dispute you might have with an unbeliever. Sometimes the only way to fully deal with that is through civil courts. This passage, however, is addressing how believers should behave toward other believers in the church when they have a personal dispute with one another. What is the church responsible to do, and what are the consequences of refusing to carry out that responsibility when it comes to disputes in the church? So first, we'll look at that first item. What is the church responsible to do. We'll see this in verses 1 through 6, and we'll find that an equipped church is responsible to reconcile, to pursue reconciliation. Verse 1, Paul says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? 
According to this verse, a certain individual is taking a fellow believer to court. And we're not told how widespread this problem is or how frequently this sort of thing is going on. We're just told that it's happening. And Paul is shocked at this. If you were to look at the Greek text, the first word of the sentence placed right at the beginning for emphasis is the word dare. This is a sin that is daring. It's presumptuous. It's blatant. There's no excuse for this behavior that's going on. Paul says, dare you do this thing? Apparently a dispute had occurred between two believers and one of them had decided to sue the other in order to bring a resolution to this matter. And it's also apparent that the church at large is okay with this because Paul is largely admonishing the church in this passage. They have not done what they ought to have done. As you read this passage, you see that Paul is bewildered. He's shocked at this, that a believer would choose to have an unrighteous official judge between him and his brother rather than to have saints render a judgment about the matter. He's also bewildered that the church at large would just go along with this kind of behavior. So in verse 2, Paul asks them that annoying question that proud people hate to be asked, do you not know? He's asked a number of those questions already because the Corinthians are struggling mightily with pride. Verse 2, he says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The Corinthians are living with blinders on. They're living in such a way that indicates that they're giving no thought to the coming judgment of God. They're not thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back to set up his kingdom. They're living as if this present age is all there is. So Paul reminds them that they're citizens of a coming kingdom. They have been made co-heirs with the judge of the living and the dead. And as such, they will participate in judging the world. Have you ever thought about that? Do you and I realize that we, as believers in Christ, will participate in judging the world? Chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, alerted us to the fact that we don't take part in judging the world now. But when we come to chapter 6, we are reminded that the day is coming, however, when we will judge the world, a future day, the day of the Lord. If you would... Uh, Turn over to Revelation chapter 2 so we can see from Scripture another place where it is said that as believers we will participate in the judgment of the world. Revelation chapter 2 verses 26 to 28. This is Jesus sending a message to a church, the church of Thyatira. Verse 26, he says, He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Then if you would, turn over to Revelation 20, chapter 20. Chapter 20 is following 
chapter 19, where we're told, uh, where, where John the Apostle relates this, divi- this vision of Jesus riding down out of heaven and his armies following him, and his armies are dressed in fine linen, white and clean, which is always a descriptor of saints. So the saints are following him out of heaven as he comes to overthrow all evil and set up his kingdom. So he set up his kingdom. We come to chapter 20 and verse 4. And John writes, Then I saw thrones, and they, that is the armies who followed him out of heaven, the saints, they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The day is coming when saints will judge the world. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, don't you realize this? You should know this. Back in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Paul is saying, if you are going to judge the world someday, Are you not worthy of handling the smallest of cases, the smallest of disputes? He could have asked to make the same point, do you not have the Holy Spirit of God residing inside of you? Do you not have access to the word of God which makes you wise? Has God not given you everything you need to help these two quarreling brothers to reconcile one another? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, they have everything they need. Yes, they are worthy to handle these small disputes because of who they are in Christ and what God has given them in the Holy Spirit through his word. Then he asks another question in verse 3. He says, do you not know that we will judge angels? Right now, we are lower than angels. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he made himself for a little while lower than angels. But when he died and rose again and the Father exalted him above the name that is, uh, he gave him a name that is above every name, Jesus resumed his position as being above angels. And when he did that, he took his people with him to sit with him on his throne. We will judge angels. If so, how much more matters of this life? The word translated matters of this life, it means things that are part of daily life, ordinary things, everyday matters. So Paul says, if you're going to judge angels, which is a far headier task than anything going on on this planet right now, are you not competent? Are you not worthy to resolve these minor things? When we come to verse 4, my translation says this, So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Translated this way, Paul is saying that since the church has been equipped by God to deal with everyday disputes, then why are they farming it out? Why are they farming out this responsibility to unbelievers to take care of this task when believers have been given everything they need to handle this? The the Greek of this verse, it would allow for it to be translated another way. 
instead of asking a question, it could be translated as a command. So it would read like this. If you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church. Translated that way, Paul is saying, appoint believers, those who are little esteemed, as the King James says. Appoint those who are despised as judges, not unbelievers. And there's arguments to be made for either translation. It's difficult to decide which one is correct, but the point is largely the same, whichever way you go. Paul is saying to the church, you ought to be handling these disputes, these personal disputes that a brother or sister is having with one another, you ought to be handling these things in-house as a spiritual family. He's saying you must not relinquish your responsibility to do so to unrighteous judges, individuals who will have no interest in bringing glory to Christ in the resolution of this dispute. They will have no vested interest in pursuing your spiritual good in resolving this dispute. So stop doing that. Take care of it among yourselves. God has given you everything you need to reconcile with one another. As we come to verses 5 and 6, we see that Paul wants these believers to feel ashamed of themselves. He says, verse 5, I say this to your shame. Then he asks, Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Now that statement would have been quite offensive to the Corinthians. They would have taken great umbrage at that statement because what did the Corinthians boast about themselves? They thought they were wise. They thought they had arrived, that they had reached the end of the road of sanctification, that they had no need for anybody to teach them about anything. They thought they were wise. But here's Paul ironically saying to them, is there not a single person among you wise enough to deal with this? Are you all so lacking in wisdom that instead of helping these two brothers reconcile, you've left them to tear each other apart in pagan courts? The Corinthians thought they were wise, but they'd really become fools. Worldly wisdom had stolen from them their ability to reconcile with one another and to help each other reconcile with one another. The Corinthians had fallen into an age-old trap. It's a trap that each one of us have fallen into and will continue to fall into if we are not careful. It's the same trap that Satan laid for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And as such, their relationship with each other was perfect. Perfect peace, no conflict. And their relationship with God was perfect. Perfect peace, no conflict. But then the serpent came along. And do you remember the lie of the serpent? He said that God was really holding out on them. They could have so much more if they just ate some of the fruit of that forbidden tree in the garden, then they could become like God. 
But what happened when they ate of that fruit? Did they become like God? No, the opposite happened. They became less like God. The image of God that they were created in was marred by sin. Peace with God and with each other was lost. Now, as Christians, the image of God is being restored in us as we are conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we have been reconciled to God. We have been made at peace with God through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And along with that reconciliation, we have been given everything we need by the Spirit, through the Word, to be reconciled with one another when we have disputes. We have everything we need. But then the evil one comes along, and he tells us that God is holding out on us, that if we just lay hold of what this world has to offer, then we'll be happy, then we'll be content, then we will be like God. What does this world offer us? This world offers us status, pleasure, material possessions, and if we're not careful, we can become blinded to what we already possess in Christ and start to think that what the world is offering us is actually better than what we have in Jesus Christ. And we often swallow that lie without even realizing it. Do you want to know how you can tell when you've swallowed the lie? What do you do when someone threatens what this world has given you? How do you react when someone touches or taints your reputation? How do you react when someone threatens to get in the way of your worldly pleasures? How do you react when you are faced with the threat of losing your material possessions? How do you respond to conflict? If your response to conflict is to selfishly hang on to what you've gained in this world, then in that moment, you're swallowing the lie. And you might show that in one of two ways. You might try to hang on to this, what this world offers by running away from the conflict, not dealing with it. Or you might try to hang on to what you have in this world by attacking the person that you're in conflict with, trying to annihilate the threat. But neither of those responses is a Christ-like response. Jesus stepped into a world, a whole world that was at conflict with God and with itself. And when Jesus came, being the Son of God, we rejected him. John 1 says, those who were his own did not receive him. But what did he do? Did he run away? Did he avoid us? Or did he do the opposite? Did he try to obliterate us? No, if he did that, we would all of us be without hope. What he did was do everything possible to reconcile us to himself, to make us at peace with himself, and he requires his people to do the same thing. Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says, So then, we pursue the things which make for peace, and the building up of one another. That is what is supposed to characterize the people of God. Jesus, the Lord of the church, 
does not allow his church when conflict occurs within it. Jesus does not allow his church to simply throw up her hands and walk away when the conflict occurs. The church at Corinth had done that. And Paul was absolutely flabbergasted at that because that is totally the opposite of what the church has been equipped and called by God to do. That brings us to the second issue. What if we don't fulfill our responsibility to pursue reconciliation with one another? Well, verses 7 and 8 tell us the expected consequences of refusing to reconcile. The expected consequences of refusing to reconcile. Verse 8, Paul lets them know what the consequences are. He says, Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. When you sue somebody, what is typically your goal in suing somebody? It's to win, to win that case. And from a worldly perspective, at the end of a lawsuit, you have a winner and you have a loser. But from a biblical perspective, a conflict among brothers and sisters in the church that results in both parties seeking to damage one another or take advantage of one another or result in just being estranged from one another, that indicates that everyone has already lost. Regardless of how the lawsuit plays out, regardless of who on paper won, everyone lost. Both the the one pursuing the lawsuit and the one defending himself in the lawsuit, they lost, and the whole church has lost. It's a defeat. There are no winners. Why is that? It's because when you seek to damage another believer, instead of to reconcile with that person, you are denying the work of reconciliation that Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2, where we read about this work of reconciliation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul, writing to Gentile believers, he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jews and Gentiles, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus shed his blood on the cross to unite sinners together in himself and to reconcile those sinners to God. So when you refuse to pursue reconciliation with a brother or sister in Christ, you are saying that Jesus did not do enough 
to pay for that person's sins or to make both of you a part of the same body. Not only that, but if I refuse to reconcile with someone, it destroys my witness to a watching world. Because why should an unbeliever whose sins against God are infinitely greater than this brother's sins against me, when that unbeliever watches me, supposedly a forgiven believer, disputing with another forgiven believer, and I'm unwilling to forgive that person because of their little sins against me, and that unbeliever realizes the enormity of his sin against God, when he sees that I am unwilling to show mercy to this person, what hope is he going to have that Almighty God is going to have mercy on him? It destroys our witness when we refuse to pursue reconciliation with one another. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. He says, in light of that, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, did he retaliate? Did he return evil for evil? Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Back to 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is saying, why not rather be wronged than seek vengeance on your brother by hauling him to court? It'd be far more honoring to God to willingly suffer a wrong at the hands of a brother in Christ than to drag that brother or Christ, that brother or sister in Christ into court for vengeance. And I want to be clear, we can read this and we might think, well, as long as I don't drag someone into court, I'm doing what this passage is telling me to do. No, the Bible always doesn't let you stop with your outward behavior. It forces you to keep going into your heart. There are many ways that we can seek vengeance on a brother or a sister. Many ways that we can seek to get our pound of flesh from someone. Conflict does not always have to end up in court for it to still be a total loss for you and the church. We can seek to manipulate one another, insult one another, put guilt trips on each other, gossip about one another, withhold greetings from one another, harbor bitterness toward one another. You name it, there's a whole host of ways that we can seek to take someone to court in our hearts. But none of those ways is how someone who has experienced the reconciling grace of God should behave. As we draw to a close, turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. 
Toward the end of this letter, we see Paul address a pair of believers in the church who were having a dispute, and they were unable to reconcile. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche, two women, I urge them to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These two ladies were unable to reconcile, and so Paul enlists the help of people within the church to help them reconcile, to help them work through their differences, to help them come back to a place where they are harmoniously following and serving Christ together. Sometimes we need help in reconciling to one another. And we have to be willing to ask for that help, and we have to be willing to give that help. The church is supposed to be there to render that help. And so may the Lord help us to be that kind of church. I praise him for how far he has made us that kind of church. But we we must excel still more. Let's not turn our backs on each other when there's conflict. Let's be willing to get our hands dirty. Let's be willing to do the hard work of searching the scriptures so that we might know how to wisely speak into a dispute that a a brother and a sister might be having. Let's get on our knees and ask God for that wisdom. Seeking reconciliation is hard. It is painful. It's much easier to run away or to attack. It's harder to humble yourself, take the log out of your eye, and pursue peace with that person that you are not agreeing with. And it's hard to be on the outside and step into that pain and seek to help that situation. But that is what the Lord has called us to as believers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You cannot truly make peace with others until you have been made at peace with God. Because of our sin, we are all born enemies of God, at war with God, having no peace with God. And to be at peace with God, you need Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Savior. Because God, who is in the right in this conflict, he's the one in the right. He took the initiative to send his son to die on the cross in the place of sinners and to rise from the dead so that we could be reconciled back to the God we sinned against. And if you would trust in Jesus to take control of your life and to save you from the wrath of God, then God will forgive you and make you his child. He will reconcile you to himself. He will make you be at peace with him. And if you're a believer and you've forgotten the reconciliation that you enjoy with God, and you're in a conflict, and you're behaving in a way that shows you've forgotten those truths, meditate on those truths. That will motivate you and empower you to pursue reconciliation with someone that you might be in conflict with. Let's pray.